Now, why don't we just go ahead and get started with phone calls? As I said, it's uh, Mike, Chicken Joe, James, and Robert in that order. Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Beautiful day. Well, we got a, we got a real nice rain here the other day, two inches at least. Um, Outstanding. But uh, we also got some very strong winds. Uh-huh. And uh, my bottle brush tree that I've spoken to you about in the past, and you know, you said uh, you shouldn't let it grow into let it uh, grow into becoming like a tree or something. Yes. Uh, out of its main trunk, it had like three, uh, um, you know, break-offs, uh, big, big... Uh, yeah, big, trunk. big lambs, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, and um, it got split in half, so I have half of a bottle tree. Now, should I go ahead and, you know, finish cutting it down or... Uh, it's, Let it go and see if the wind will get the other half eventually. <laughs> and sadly, that is, uh, you know, that's that's about what it amounts to. In last week's storm, I lost half a hackberry tree, and I'm I'm doing the same thing. Uh, now, in my case, it was not the best tree in the world and kind of hollow. When I get around to it, I will take it down. In the case of your bottle brush, um, it's... I would go ahead and trim it back. We're at a point early enough in the season. It's got lots of time to put on new growth uh, to fill out. Uh, This time, well, the choice is yours. Again, you can make it a tree or you can make it a bush. But the fact that you, in effect, lost two-thirds of the top means that that remaining one-third is going to be even more susceptible to storm damage uh, next time a big wind comes along, and as you well know, it in Texas, I don't care where you are from the coast to the panhandle, that wind does blow periodically. So I would rather be able to control the point at which it comes out. So uh, um, I guess the good news is that you've had a chance to enjoy most of this spring's blooming season. But oh, yeah. um, it's up to you. Were it mine, I would cut it back to the point I would like it to come out and uh, – just uh, consider it <laughs> uh, another one of uh, Mother Nature's lessons. And uh, as we like to say, what is it they say? Um, uh, a learning experience is the name we give to our mistakes. And uh, that's, uh, you know, bottle brush is just a weak wooded plant. Although, you know, I feel the same way about crepe myrtles and other things. I'd rather see them as a multi-trunk tree than a single trunk because I guess I've lived enough years on this earth to see see what storms can do and um this was one of those times when the rain was good the wind was somewhat devastating what if anything should i put into the wound uh, not a thing not a thing Uh, wound dressings uh that we use on live oaks and red oaks are made strictly to deter insects that could possibly be carrying the spores for oak wilt uh, it's been shown pretty well that uh, wound, the wound dressings, the black tarry ones at least, actually slow down healing rather than speed it up. So uh, oh, okay. absolutely. I mean, if there are any real ragged edges or spots like that, trim them up just as a surgeon would, uh, you know, would clean up a wound before he sutured it up. And uh, there, But there's absolutely no reason and could be counterproductive to paint okay. or put any sealer on it. And also, just out of curiosity, and I don't know if you know this or not, but maybe one of your listeners does, uh, does that uh, wood make uh, good firewood? It will burn. Now, whether it, it imparts any flavor or not, I couldn't tell you that. But long time ago, and, and I mean a long time ago, we did an article 
um, on the different on the heat producing qualities of firewood. And uh-huh. it turns out that generally speaking, the denser the wood, the more BTUs of heat it will produce. Um, uh-huh. Bottle brush is a fairly lightweight wood, uh, and it will certainly burn vigorously. And I guess it, you know, would make a pretty fire. But as far as being a heat generator, no, not nearly as good as, say, oak or elm would be. Okay, great. And I would highly question that thing about being a light wood. Uh, as I was hauling some of it off, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say it was very light. Well, I'd, I'd trade you some of that to haul off or some of the hackberry I was hauling off. That's the densest, wettest, heaviest wood. And um, but it's uh, it is certainly not as light as some, but let me tell you, it's not as heavy as some others, either one. <laughs> OK, great. Uh, I'm heading up your way Thursday, so hopefully I'll run into you up there. And you uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to see you. You uh, have a great week in the meantime. Appreciate the call, Mike. Thank you. Bye bye. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Our old friend Chicken Joe. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Bob. Hey, I'm talking to you. I mean, I'm uh, listening to you from in San Antonio for a change. But, um, when I go back to Denver at the end of this week, I'm going to be spreading some compost in the beds. And okay. Bed, garden beds. Do I remember correctly that with compost, you just top dress it? You don't dig it in? You know, that's strictly up to you. I prefer to use compost as a top dressing. For more than one reason, you know, on as a top dressing, it, among the many things it does, it suppresses weeds and it causes no harm to the life underneath it. When you till the soil, in effect, whether you're doing it with a fork or with a uh, with a mechanical device, uh, you're breaking that soil up. You are bringing buried weed seeds up to the surface where they can sprout, and you're busting up the long fibered uh, multicellular beneficial fungi that are in the soil plus you're bringing up organic material that's sequestered in the soil to the surface where it can oxidize and that good carbon that you want in the soil can be lost to the air so for those reasons i prefer just to put compost on the surface and then if some of it gets mixed in as when i'm planting you know vegetable plants or flowers either one that's fine but uh, I I don't intentionally blend it in, uh, with the exception if I'm in an area with super, super hard soil that for whatever reason needs to be softened overnight, well, then you may want to mix it in. But just left, to the, left on the surface, it will naturally soften the soil underneath it. Uh, it will improve things without having any negative qualities whatsoever. So... Uh, I'm more into using compost as a mulch rather than blending it in in 98% of the cases. Okay, well, that's what I thought you told me to do. I just didn't, didn't remember all those good reasons. <laughs> well, do, you know, if you understand the reasons, you're more likely to remember, you know, what to do. And that's that's why the old teacher in me has to, has to give a long answer to a short question. Hope I don't bore you with it. Well, well, it was a good answer. Well, hopefully I'll be back sometime today to see you and Wendy and, and Roberta and all the folks. You know, we'd love to see you. Love to see you, Joe. You have a great uh, Sunday in the meantime. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Let's say hello to another friend. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Uh, just an absolutely gorgeous day following a week that had some very good rains, very pleasant temperature, and 
I guess the only negative is, in my book, it may even be still too early to plant okra because it's uh, that soil is is uh, several degrees cooler than usual. But all in all, it's been a pretty darn good week. How about you? Oh yeah, we got two and a half inches of rain. So yeah, that's a good good deal. Uh, I wanted to call you up and give you a report from the farm. Uh, I asked you about uh, that. Uh, Flying dragon, or what do you call them? Yeah, flying dragon rootstock for citrus. Yeah, and I put them in the greenhouse like you suggested, and they really like it uh, hot. Yes, so they're, sir. They're, they're popping. That's, that was good advice. Thanks good. for that. Well, you're welcome. The, um, the early girls are starting to pick early girls. They're, they're ready to eat. Oh, wow. Uh, well, they're, Johnny replaced early girl with new girl. Uh-huh. And the flavors there and the plants, uh, I was out there this morning. Uh, they're on uh, Maxiford rootstock. Right. And they, they're pruned at two heads on strings, and I counted uh, over 60 tomatoes per plant. Wow. They really produce. That sounds like it. And and the flavors, uh, the flavors, uh, yeah, it's not as good as your uh, main crop tomatoes, but it's better than no tomatoes. Well, and for early tomatoes, you know, sometimes you sacrifice a little bit of flavor to get them two weeks, three weeks before anything else comes in. But uh, um, it sounds like your, your grafting is working out well and that the uh, replacement variety, you know, sometimes... That's the thing. For whatever reason, uh, when they come up with a, quote, new and improved, it loses something along the way. But Johnny's is definitely one of the better seed companies out there. And uh, I have to say they they seem to have the small gardener in mind as well as the, you know, super big major producer. So many of the seed companies, especially the ones who were bought out by Monsanto, they're not interested in you and me. They're interested in the guy that plants 100 acres of tomatoes, and uh, and he wants those things that resemble cardboard that you can bounce all the way to the truck before you send it to the grocery store. Yeah, that's... Uh... That's the way it goes in this big world today. I like to support uh, the smaller mom-and-pop outfits, and Johnny's has always been good to us. Exactly. The reason I, the reason I called you is uh, to ask a question. Yeah, when we use the Earthway uh, push planter, that you know, the cedar, yeah. and we do legumes, uh, I, I go back with a watering can and uh, – uh, Put the uh, the mycorrhiza, the soluble on on the row mm-hmm. to, get, to get things going. Um, I just use a mycorrhiza. I don't know if that's got the rhizobia in it or not. Can don't, we use it? it you'd have rhizobia? to look at the blend and and see. Um, you know, they do two different things, and of course, as you well know, there are many strains of mycorrhizal fungi. There are both endo and ecto mycorrhizae. Uh, most of what you're getting in garden plants are going to be the endomycorrhizae, and they they do a totally different job uh, than the ones than the bacteria, which are the things that actually produce the uh, you know little nitrogen little nodules filled with the nitrogen fixing bacteria. So you'd you'd have to look at your inoculant mix because uh, mycorrhizae are, are truly a fungus 
Uh, the rhizobium, those things are actually a bacteria, and I'm sure there are products out there which contain both of them, but uh, we've gotten to the point that there are probably a dozen, 15 different suppliers of mycorrhizal fungal products, so uh, you just need to look at uh, you just need to look at that package and see what they've put in. Now, uh, on the other hand, as you've as we've talked about many times, uh, the nitrogen fixing bacteria remain in the soil from crop to crop. So unless you're planting a new bed or unless you've brought in a bunch of new soil, um, which I don't think either one of those are the case, if you're planting your legumes in beds where you've planted your legumes before, reinoculating with uh, uh, with your nitrogen-fixing bacteria is probably not necessary. Now, uh, the mycorrhizae is a bit of a different story for folks who go through the garden and literally pull up the plants at the end of the growing season, you've probably just really screwed up your mycorrhizal fungus because it was still growing actively even though the plants were slowing down. And when you rip those plants out of the ground, you basically kill uh, the mycorrhizal fungus. When you simply snip those plants off at ground level or snip them off two inches up, uh, it sends a signal to the mycorrhizal fungus, hey, I'm going away, you better go into your resting state, and then the mycorrhizal fungus stays in the soil from season to season, and actually, if you were to cut the plant off and then wait three or four weeks and then go back and pull up what was left of the plant, your mycorrhizal fungus would remain in the ground from season to season. But when you pull up a plant that is still alive, even if it's not in real active growth, um, you're probably killing most of the mycorrhizal fungus at the time you do that. So it, it just kind of depends on how you handle the transition from one crop to the next. Does that make sense? Yes. Is the, my, is the uh, rhizobia water-soluble? It is. It goes into suspension rather than into solution. It will. Okay, Bob, the, the thing is, is um, when you try to inoculate those seeds, you know, pouring them back and forth, or right. squirting them down with big red or coke, like Malcolm used to tell us. Right. It makes a big sticky, gooey mess, and and it's you got to clean up the the cedar, and it's it's really not working. Yeah, if we I could seed the beds and then water them in. That would really work for me. Well. Here's you know here's what I do and I'm not using the cedar I'm still doing it by hand but I don't fool with the big red or any sticky stuff what I will do is I'll take my little jar my little cup whatever I'm wanting to use I'll put my seed in there I'll you know soak it usually with a little garret juice for no more than 10 or 15 minutes then I pour the water off and sprinkle uh, the inoculant over the top of them. Now, if you took it one step further and just let that seed dry to where it would go into your spreader, I I think you would do just fine. As you know, the inoculant is just as fine as graphite powder. And um, I, I, I've never seen that it's necessary to put any sticky stuff on those seeds. And uh, um, but anyway, that's just what I do. I, I leave them. I just simply turn that cup upside down, drain the water off, sprinkle a little inoculant into it, and give it a couple of shakes. And then I'm just sometimes I'm going to go out and plant immediately. Sometimes it may sit there for 30 minutes before I get around to it. But uh, I think if you wanted to do it all in one operation, you could do that. But I'm I'm not into big red or sticky stuff. I just don't think it's necessary. I think you get plenty of inoculant on there. Uh, just sprinkle it on uh, a moist surface. 
Yeah, it makes a big mess in the cedars, and yeah. then you got to take it all apart. I was just trying to find a little bit easier easier way. I think if you just um, moisten them, sprinkle them, and then let them dry, it's it's just like planting dry seed and shouldn't cause any, any contamination or any gumming up of the works at all. Okay, well, thanks for explaining the uh, the uh, mycorrhiza. They they have to have roots. That's that's where they live. Yeah, they have to. And, uh, it, it's a symbiotic relationship. The mycorrhizae are doing their part in providing water and nutrient to the plant root, but the mycorrhizal fungus is living off of carbohydrates that the plant, in effect, gives to this. So it's a two-way, it's it's a true symbiotic relationship. There's something to be gained. Each Each party gets something out of the deal, so to speak. So, yeah, that's why it has to be in close contact with the root in order to germinate, in order to survive. Getting back to the tomatoes, those... Uh celebrities grafted on the maxi fort finally stopped growing uh, they're as big as refrigerators and now they're putting on flowers it's, it, i've never seen anything like it maybe we'll get some tomatoes one of these days uh take some pictures james we all love to see your work okay thanks Bob. my pleasure thank you sir <laughs> goodbye all right back to gardening we're going to talk to elroy gary robert and mark and elroy's up first good morning sir good morning how are those peaches developing Oh, they seem to be doing pretty good with oh, yeah. all this rain. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. If if you didn't uh, have problems with the frost, uh, you're in good shape in Fredericksburg, it sounds like. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've got a question. I've got one of those uh, escarpment cherry trees, and it's only about three foot high, and I'm trying to save it, and... Uh, it it forks about two inches above the soil line. Mm-hmm. It has two two liters, and I'm just wondering: let it grow like that, or would you cut one of them off and just have it have one go up rather than having two go up? All right, is it a fairly narrow angle between the two liters? Yeah, not not too not too short. Okay, in general. I would always take one out because if you look at that, if you think about what's below the bark, those wood fibers are parallel to each other, and it is the would be a weak spot in the tree, and could certainly that tree could uh, split and come down at some future point when those uh, trunks, when those leaders have gotten big. If you choose to leave it and let it make a double trunk tree, that's okay too, provided that, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, you go back in there and either put a piece of all thread rod through the two trunks to secure them together where they can't be pulled apart by the wind, or else you do what they call cabling, which is basically tying the two halves of the tree together so that they move in tandem rather than going opposite directions in that next big windstorm so a tree with a double trunk can be secured and made much less susceptible to storm damage but on a young tree probably most people and most arborists would tell you hey avoid the problems in the futures just go ahead and let one of those leaders develop and cut the other one away now while the tree's young uh, that tree will straighten i've seen in fact we had a pecan tree have a pecan tree at our nursery that had two trunks probably 15 20 years ago i took one of them out for that reason and for the next 
oh, five years, the remaining trunk, you could see a very definite lean to it. And now, 15, 20 years down the road, it's just as straight a trunk, and you would never know that there was even a second leader there to begin with. So my tree, I'm going to take one of them out. But if you choose to leave it, you can certainly do so. Just remember, somewhere a little further down the road, you're going to have to secure the two trunks together so that they don't split and come apart. Yeah, I don't think I'll be around at that time. Well, it it <laughs> gives you just one more or many reason, many things to live for, Elroy. <laughs> okay. All right, that answers my question. Well, you get out and have a wonderful Sunday, and I look forward to our next visit. Thank you, sir. Okay, thanks a lot. Certainly. Bye. Goodbye. Uh, Gary's next. Good morning, Gary. Hey, Bob. Um, I have a question on Valencia oranges. Okay. I had a couple of trees. They've had uh, two good years in succession. Uh-huh. Uh, this year is not a blossom on them. Um, anything I can do to encourage blossoms, or is it just uh, just going to be one of those uh, off years that you have with these trees now and then? Well, it's it's a little bit of both. Um, those The tree probably needed a little bit of a rest, but a lot of oranges, uh, the buds got nipped, even though they were at a stage that they really weren't visible. That late frost that we had uh, destroyed what we call the bud primordia, which is the little cellular group that eventually turns into that flower bud. And we've seen that with a lot of citrus. Uh, oranges are a little bit more susceptible to it than, say, lemons or uh, tangerines and things. But I, I think it was probably a combination of the late frost and the fact that uh, that citrus can very definitely do what we call alternate bearing, and that is when you get a really heavy crop one or two years, the tree's going to rest a little bit and probably be back to that super heavy production next year if the weather cooperates. Okay, thanks very much, Bob. That was my only question. Well, a good question it is, Gary. Thanks so much for the call this morning. <laughs> Goodbye. And Robert's next. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Well, I'm great, thank you. How about yourself? Good. Working on the fence for an hour and a half already. What a what a day. <laughs> well, it's a glorious day to be out. You know, hope you got waterproof shoes on because if uh, if the dew in Austin is as heavy as it was in San Antonio, this is a real get you wet morning. I got wet feet. <laughs> <laughs> so I I bought some chicken poultry manure from uh-huh. one of your advertisers. And put it on my St. Augustine lawn, and Bob, I've never seen, <laughs> I've never had a lawn <laughs> that looks like this one does. It is just phenomenal. Well, that's. I, I was I was looking at their website, and um, one of the things they stress is carbon. Mm-hmm. And it got me to think how how it contains carbon from the chicken litter. Right. And I got to think about it. And, from high school chemistry, uh, organic compounds uh, is carbon combined with uh, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, et cetera, right? Right. So organic compounds are carbon by by nature. Correct. What, what are they talking about when uh, they're talking about additional carbon? Is this just sort of a good advertising? Uh, you know... Or, it's that's a really excellent question, Robert. And uh, if you remember your organic chemistry, hopefully better than I do, but um, carbon forms a unique type of bond. Uh, you know, when you're looking at, you know, say a water molecule is is my 
vague memory uh, tells me it's something called a covalent bond, which is a relatively weak bond. Carbon bonds tend to contain a huge amount of energy, and carbon can, in effect, enter into its partners, be they other carbon atoms or oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, those things, uh, with single bonds, double bonds, or even triple bonds, and they contain a huge amount of energy. Think about TNT, for instance, and various other carbon compounds that are used to make things go bang in a big way. But that that energy... Uh, is contained in in you know virtually all of the carbon containing compounds uh, and that's you know that's what gives us warmth when you throw a piece of uh, wood on the fire or when you you know start up your car you're just breaking old carbon bonds that formed a few million years ago in a you know primeval sea or whatever but those that energy contained in those bonds is what is used by the microbial life in the soil to create good soil structure, uh, to support the beneficial bacteria that do everything from uh, sequestering nitrogen and um, other you know things in the soil. Uh, it, it's the energy source for the life in the soil, and I think most any good soil scientist these days will freely admit that we've discovered that the life in the soil is the most important thing in the soil. Sadly, of course, most American agriculture is based on basically hydroponic gardening. You're just dumping, um, you know, fertilizer, not carbon-containing, onto uh, soil that is just totally devoid of most other other nutrients, and you're just growing in a in a hydroponic environment. Nothing just just water and sand, so to speak. So that carbon that is in the soil, it serves a number of per of purposes. Um, one of which is very important to the life in the soil. The other thing about carbon is that if we don't have it tied up in a multi, well, in a molecular form in the soil, it's probably going to turn into carbon dioxide, which is, of course, the principal greenhouse gas, which is what um, people are so concerned about with talking about global warming. And there's a pretty good body of research out there that shows that the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is equal to the decrease in the carbon in the soil, which is created by, quote, modern agriculture, because, uh, you know, when you use organic fertilizers, you're putting more carbon, you're putting more energy back into the soil than the soil microbes need just to process the fertilizer. On the other hand, when you're using one of those uh, synthetically derived fertilizers, which contain no carbon, the soil bacteria that have to convert that fertilizer into something that plants can use, they're robbing carbon from the other carbon sources in the soil. And when you're using that uh, ammonium sulfate or ammonium nitrate or triple whatever um, out there, you're steadily decreasing the carbon content of the soil. The soil crusts much worse. It becomes much more compacted, and the crops that we grow lose vigor to some extent and definitely lose quality. So the more carbon we can put into the soil, the better the soil becomes, but it goes beyond that. The uh, cleaner our atmosphere is, and uh, the more good life we have in the soil to 
suppress the many diseases and uh, things that are out there that would that would do our plants harm as well as uh, you know human and other animal life on Earth. That's that's a little bit of my soapbox, and that's a little bit more of a extended explanation than you asked for. But does it make sense? It does, and you remember a lot more uh, chemistry than I do. But I was <laughs> what I was really curious about is uh, their this biotrack uh, um, yep. emphasizing that they've got added carbon in the form of chicken litter. And I'm just wondering if if that's more uh, advertising uh, propaganda than than content. In other words, organic compounds or organic fertilizer are carbon, carbon-based. Right. right. So is that a different form of carbon? No, that, that no, it's it? not. What, what they're really talking about is you've got carbon in the chicken poop, in the, uh, you know, in the stuff the chickens produce but the bedding material the other things that they use in uh their their poultry production that's getting blended in along with the chicken excrement so to speak and that is what is bringing additional carbon to the table i mean just pure old chicken manure is a fine product but uh i I think it's partly advertising gimmick i suspect that all of the other fertilizer companies out there at least the ones that i know are using poultry litter products so they're the same way and Viatrac is is an excellent fertilizer for many uses, and it's uh, the worst Viatrac fertilizer is better than the best of the synthetic things. But um, you have to realize that there are companies out there like Medina, for instance, and uh, you know, along with some of the other good organic companies, they are in effect fortifying the poultry litter with extra green sand, which is not naturally in there, with extra molasses, which is still another carbon source. Um, with microbes, including mycorrhizal fungi. So um, Viatrac is an excellent fertilizer with an excellent price point. Something like, and I'll just use Medina, for example, because they're one of the biggest producers in our area. It's an even better fertilizer, but with a higher price point. And if you're the ag guy out there who's trying to fertilize 40 acres instead of uh, 4,000 square feet, uh, we're talking where price differences can really add up and can impact your bottom line. But uh, what you've got is an excellent fertilizer, but it's certainly not the only good fertilizer out there. And I have to say they have a very good marketing program, and it is not, in my opinion, it's not false or deceptive in any way. But they're sort of stating the obvious. We have extra carbon in there without saying so does everybody else. Well, that's that's what I finally decided. And then I thought, well, you know, the fact that they've sort of emphasized it the way they have might there might be more to the story than than I would. You know, Robert, there may be. I don't know those people. Uh, Fred Morales at Morales Feed could probably answer that question better than I can, because Fred's a neat guy and he's he's worked harder than any single person I know to try to get lower priced organic products in forms that farmers can afford to use them. I know he's worked very closely with Viatrac, and I um, I know if Fred's supporting it, it is a very, very top-quality product. Uh, but he'd be the first to tell you it's not the only one out there, but it has perhaps the best price point in the industry at this point. Well, they, uh, I got some from them about three weeks ago and put it on my lawn. And I, honestly, Bob, I've never, never had such phenomenal results. <laughs> now, of course, one application is not 
a universe. Of well, testing, but, it's uh, yeah. Know, I sure like what I see. Well, and and of course the uh, you know you're not out to conduct experiments on your grass. Uh, me, if I were doing it, because very few people see my grass, I probably would put Viatrek on a ten foot wide thing. I'd put Nature's Creation on a ten foot wide area. I'd put Medina on a ten foot wide area, and maybe even a Maestro product. And I'd be willing to bet you that with the weather conditions we've had in the past three weeks, every one of them would be absolutely beautiful and. <laughs> who knows i mean i haven't had that i this from about mid-february to about uh the first of june i have time very little time to spend on my own landscape and things but uh uh my point is it's a real good fertilizer but um considering what ideal weather we've had and you guys in austin have had even more rain than we have in the hill country um you've had the perfect conditions for your grass to finally get started and grow and i think that um i think that weather has uh has had a significant influence on how beautiful your yard is and having the good fertilizer on there has made a tremendous amount of difference but um there's there's a lot of things came together at the right time uh to produce a really beautiful grass for you and i'm i'm happy it happened and i certainly hope the rains continue uh one other quick question if you've got a moment um the sick trees yes Uh, neighbor with a sick tree and um i remember from you and uh, Howard talking about this that you sort of listed trunk flare exposure or lack of exposure, weed and feed and plastic weed barriers as being the three biggest uh, detriments to healthy trees. Uh, you're exactly uh, anything, right. Anything else need to go on that list? Well, those are certainly the top three. I would have to add compaction in there if uh, and you can get soil compaction from you know, heavy vehicles on the top of it, but you can also have soil compaction resulting from uh, the use of the wrong fertilizers that have, you know, burned the carbon out of the soil, which puts those clay particles much closer together. And uh, compaction, of course, compaction, what compaction does is reduce the amount of oxygen in the soil, which is what damages the roots, which gives a, you know, poorer health outlook for the tree, so to speak. But I, I would very definitely put compaction in there and then we could perhaps add the lack of specific nutrients um, that you know plants need. Now, we call them micronutrients because it only takes a very tiny amount of them, but if they're not there and very few of the synthetic fertilizer guys put any uh, additional micronutrients in there, uh, there could be nutritional deficiencies that contribute to the poor health. All right. Well, you've certainly answered my question in, in, in more more detail than I can probably even comprehend. <laughs> but uh, I, I really appreciate you going into depth on it. Well, give Susie a hug and give uh, leave on a big pet for me, and I'll look forward to her next visit. Thanks so much. Bob. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Well, my engineer tells me that uh, Kay actually has had a weak connection and has called back three times. So, David, I'm going to put her at the top of the list. It'll be Kay, David, and Mac in that order. And good morning, Kay. That is so sweet of you. Thank you very much. You are certainly welcome. Okay. We've just moved up into the Spring Branch area, and we're now on well water. So my goal is to collect rainwater, but our well, it doesn't have any bacteria in the water, but it does have a slightly higher than what they recommend lead level. So can I water my, like, fruit trees and vegetables with that water? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
it okay. uh, it you know I of course um, and I can't say I always do this but uh, uh, things that are on the ground or in the ground I'm going to give them a good washing now um, of course any water that's hit your tomatoes your peppers things that are well up off the ground is going to be nothing but good clean rainwater and things like that so uh, I I will admit I walk through my garden and pick and eat tomatoes without any cleaning whatsoever. But um, that's unusual. I I see occasionally, because I serve on a groundwater district just west of you, and we occasionally see very little bit higher fluoride levels than we like. And um, um, in, uh, you know, we get up toward uh, comfort in some of those places, we actually see a little bit higher radon levels. You might ask um, your well company or ask your groundwater district. They can certainly help you out. But when I see heavier amounts of lead or things like that, I'm sometimes more suspicious of the pump, of the piping, especially if it's an older well. Um, the source of that water could easily be, and if you're going to send a sample for testing, here's what you do if you can. You manually turn that pump on, you open a hydrant and let it flush for five minutes, and then take your water sample that you send off for testing, and that will generally tell you whether the problem is actually in your well water or whether it might be in your pressure tank or some of the associated piping. Anything, anywhere that you've had a soldered joint, you're going to have some lead in that area. So, uh, um, lead in your water is not a common thing, and and even in other parts of the country, like Detroit, where we hear about all these lead problems. Problem is not the water; the problem is the pipe that it's going through. So, if it is of concern to you, I'd be looking at uh, you know at the the piping for your well, your pressure tank, um, and all the things between the point where the water actually came out of the ground and the place where it got transferred to be tested. So I, okay. I would be very surprised if the lead problem is in your water. I think it's more likely in your piping. Hopefully it's not of a level to really be of serious concern. Yeah, it's just it was a little bit higher than what they recommended. So. Yeah, but I, I don't think and that's my, actually in the well water. I think that's in the pipes or some of the equipment so the along the way. Okay, and may I ask one more question? Yes, ma'am. Okay, on a Schumard oak, is that an oak that you would recommend? In your area, your borderline, I would rather see you, you know, with the hill country red oak. If you're in Seguin, I'd tell you Schumard oak is a uh, reasonable oak. But um, number one, Schumard is a red oak, which is highly susceptible to oak wilt. And Schumard oak is an oak which likes a little bit better soil than you're going to have in the spring branch area. So I'm staying away from red oaks in general. I'm going to plant a burr oak, a Lacey's oak, you know, one of those oaks that's in the white oak group that is not susceptible to oak wheel damage. Okay. Yeah, I've got tons and tons of the... um, the, the live oak everywhere. Look at Burr Oak, look at Shinkapin Oak, look at, uh, look at Lacey's Oak. There's some other really good oaks out there. And I will let you go now because I want to get David in before the news break. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning. Appreciate you uh, taking the call. Certainly. Um, listen, listen to you all the time. Uh, in fact, I, I, a couple of weeks ago I was, I was going to call in. You were talking about the uh, the paintbrush, Indian paintbrush right. uh, flower and uh I'm one of those guys that <laughs> foolishly or whatever collects that seed. Okay, and you know it's a very, very tiny seed. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like a grain of sand. Uh, and 
so this year I've collected actually quite a bit. It's a great year. There's uh, there's usually a little black beetle that just right. destroys those seed right. pods. And, and uh, so, uh, so the question is, now that I have you know probably four or five uh, spice yards full of seed, when is the best plant time to plant those? And and just I mean they just are they're so tiny. You yeah, I I would I would plant in the fall. October I think would be the best month. That way, if they germinate, they're likely to have enough moisture to continue. You might call John Thomas up at Wild Seed Farms and ask him. I know at one point they were thinking that Indian paintbrush grew best in association with some of our native grasses. So before you just plant your paintbrush seed, you might ask him if it would be advisable uh, and I don't I'm not sure which one of the grasses it is but if they're if this is proven out if they find that it grows best in conjunction with one of the native grasses and if so I would plant those two seeds together since you're blessed with an abundance of seed